Good morning, Kingsway. Are Dickens Arlo Rognes here? There we go. I think before I begin to preach God's word, we need to celebrate with you guys because Thursday or Friday, help me out, Darla. Friday was their 50th wedding anniversary. Well, well done. Well done. That is what we need more of in this country. And that, in this church, will tell people that the gospel is real. Because I'm not kidding when I say that apart from Jesus and everything Joshua was just speaking of, apart from faith in him, that is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible. And I wonder how on earth, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and, the, and his power is not at work in your heart, helping you confess your sin, receive forgiveness, grow and change, be humble. How can you stay married for 50 years? Um, so, if you want more wisdom from these folks, please see Dick and Darla. Um, but guys, I'm celebrating with you. I thank God for you. And as a man who's about to celebrate his 10th anniversary in three months, may God bring me to your point. May it be. You can open a Bible if you brought one to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. It's my honor to preach God's word this morning, but in keeping with the word that we heard from the Lord last Sunday, I, I want you to know something, church. I want you to know that I thank God for you. I thank God for you. I was thinking about that this week. I, I thank God for the way that you love him. I thank God for the way that you serve him. I thank God for the way that you, that you fight sin and pursue holiness. I thank God for the way I see you growing in the discipline of prayer. I hope you can sense that that's something God's doing among us. I, I thank God for the, the increasing hunger that I see among us to share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus. You know, I, I thank God that, that when life is hard, that is for so many of you, you keep right on trusting God. I thank God for that. Kingsway, when I think about you, I... I don't think fair-weather Christians. I think faithful saints. So I thank God for you. I want you to know that. And when Paul says in Ephesians 1.16 to the church in Ephesus, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I don't claim to be the Apostle Paul, but I pray for you. I pray for you. I pray for you in the morning when I'm half asleep. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to stay awake. I, I, I pray for you when I'm driving in the car. I pray for you throughout the day when I'm at the office and God brings uh, your various needs in your life to my mind. We, we pray for you as pastors, Chris, Josh, and I, in our elders meetings. We go through the membership directory page by page when we meet, and we bring every one of your names, if you're a member, before the Lord in prayer. We thank God for you. We pray for you. 
And I don't say that to make much of me, okay? But, but I say that because I want you to know that God is at work in you. And I believe in large part that's an answer to all of our prayers. And it's my privilege to join you in praying for us. So last Sunday, we focused on Ephesians 1, 15 through 17, on the motivation for one of Paul's great prayers in this chapter. And this Sunday, I want us to focus on verses 16 to 23, a little bit of overlap there, on the actual content of Paul's prayer. So last week was kind of the motivation. This is the content. So read God's word with me. Follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, would you bless right now the preaching of your word for your glory. Amen. Amen. Friend, do you realize that knowing God is the single greatest need in your life. And you don't have to agree with that for it to be true. <laughs> Knowing God is the single greatest need in your life. It's what he created you to do. It's what he made you to do. He made you to know him. And in knowing him to love him. And in loving him to serve him. And so, so whether you realize it or not, the most important prayer that you can pray in any situation, any circumstance, is this. Lord, would you show me who you are? Would you show me who you are for me right now so that I can know you and love you and obey you? Lord, Lord tell me who you are. Show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. That's the most important prayer you can pray. Why do I say that God has to reveal himself to us? Why do I say it that way? Well, it's because it's not in our individual thoughts about God, please hear this, that we discover the truth of who he is. Okay, there are all sorts of people out there, even people in here, who have all manner of ideas about who God is. And many thoughtful men and women respond to that, that kind of pluralism by saying, well, you know what? 
if there are six billion people out there with six billion different ideas about who God is, well, I look at that and I think, well, then, you know what? I just, I guess we'll never know who God is. I mean, if there's so many different ideas, how can we know? That's crazy. I'll be like six billion and one or whatever. Well, to be honest, I sympathize with that. I, I, I get that logic in a sense, but I would simply say, I think there's another option. There's another conclusion you can draw from the fact that there are six billion ideas out there about who God is. And here's the conclusion, namely, that instead of trying to figure out who we think God is, we can choose to believe and submit to who God says he is. I hope you're tracking with that. Because in Psalm 139.17, King David doesn't say, How precious to me are my thoughts about you, O God. No, what does he say? He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. That's why he's given us his word. God, God tells us who he is so that as we study his word and obey his word, we can learn, as it were, to think God's thoughts after him. Okay, that, that, that's our goal as we gather on Sunday mornings and, and His Word is preached, that as His people we would learn to think God's thoughts after Him. And there are a number of thoughts about God, truths about who He is in these verses that Paul's praying God would reveal to the Ephesians. Several things they needed to know about God so they could think God's thoughts after Him. Several things that we need to know about God. So here's the first one. What do we need to know about God? Number one, we need to know the hope of his call. Okay, look at verse 18. That is what Paul prays here. May you know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, there are are two things we need to understand here. First is the nature of God's call. And second, what is it about this call that brings hope along with it? Okay, that gives us hope. When, When Paul says, Christian, that God has called you, he is pointing back to the moment of your conversion, okay? To the moment when God sovereignly intervened into your dead heart and spoke over your dead heart, let there be life. Okay, that's the call that Paul has in view here. He, he gave you the gift of faith in Christ, and as a result of that gift, you went from choosing to believe whatever you wanted to believe to believing in Jesus, from death to life. And, and it's Paul's way of summarizing everything that he just finished saying in Ephesians 1, 3-14. So, if God has called you... It means that he chose to think of you as being in Christ before the foundation of the world. If God has called you, it means he predestined you for adoption as his sons and daughters. If God has called you, it means that he's redeemed you through the blood of Christ. Your your sins have been completely forgiven. And he's given you an eternal inheritance, the joy of living with him face to face in glory for all eternity. In the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, If God's called you, that, that's what's true of you. It means 
that when he finally unites all things in Christ, you're going to be there. And you're going to see it. And you're going to experience in that moment what it's like to stand before God without the slightest trace of sin. I mean, can, you, can you just imagine that? You're going to experience what it's like to stand before God and be able to say in completely good conscience, not hiding anything, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. Christian, if you've been called by God, that's where you're headed. In the new heavens and the new earth, no more sorrow, no more, no more tears. You won't, you won't long for home anymore because you're going to be home. It's everything Adam and Eve knew in, in the Garden of Eden, but it's, but it's better. It's not going to end. To be called by God is to be caught up in his cosmic plan of redemption such that your future in Christ is secure and delightful. Now, why can I say that? All because God called you. Well, here's why. Because God's call is not like my call. (laughs) It's not. I was thinking about this this week. You know, when I call someone, what happens? When you call someone, what happens? Well, Well, they could run away from you. They could ignore you. They could send you to voicemail. <laughs> you know, I, I, can, I can holler at my kids, kids, be quiet. Does that mean the kids are going to be quiet? No. No. Well, why not? Well, because, because my call isn't effective. You know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Church, praise God that his call is always effective. Always effective. His call is not like our call. It's always effective. Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? I mean, what's the answer to Paul's question? No one. No one. I mean, I mean people can try, right? They can hurt you. They can malign you. They can, they can tell you that you're worthless. That you're not going to amount to anything. That you'll never change. You'll always be this way. You'll never be good enough. So, so what do you say, Christian, to those voices around you and inside of you when they start saying those kinds of things? What, what do you say to them? Well, I'll tell you what you say. You say to that voice, you say to that voice, you are exactly right. Except for one thing. And that one thing is more decisive, more determinative, more influential when it comes to the final outcome of my life, voice, than anything else about me and that's this i have been called by god that's what you say i've been called by god and what god says always comes to pass your future in christ could not be more secure or more delightful god wants you to know christian 
Know the hope to which he has called you so that when when life grabs you by the throat, as it were, and threatens to shipwreck your faith, you can fix your trembling gaze on your heavenly father and say in the midst of your darkness, God, I know, I know, and I thank you that one day you're coming back and you're going to make all things new. That's all I've got right now. And Lord, I thank you that's all I need. And friend, on the days when you can't even say that because your faith is so weak, and you start to wonder, is all this God stuff really true? I mean, is it, is it really going to turn out for good in the end? By the way, I thought that. Well, know this. In that moment, know this. When you, when you can't even see the hope of your call, know this. Your call hasn't changed. Your call hasn't changed. Your call doesn't come and go based on your awareness of it. Why not? Because it's God's call. Right? And what God decrees always comes to pass. If God has called you, then that means way before you were born, before the foundation of the world, in fact, that God saw you as being in Christ and called you in Christ. So guess what? When in the right moment of time you were born and your life comes to pass on earth, there is nothing that will keep God's call from accomplishing its purpose in your life. Nothing. And you might not see it. But it's there, Christian. It's the first thing you need to know about God. The hope of his call. Here's the second. The riches of his inheritance. These just keep getting better. Look back at verse 18. Okay, Paul, Paul says something remarkable here. He's, he's just finished talking about the inheritance, 3 to 14, that we can look forward to as Christians that I just talked about, the hope of our call, being with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But then Paul turns and he kind of looks at the whole situation from God's perspective and he adds this, may you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, well now whose inheritance are we talking about? Guess what? God's, the his is God, it's the Father's inheritance. In other words, Christian, you're not the only one who has an inheritance coming your way. God does. God does it. And guess what God's inheritance is? It's you. It's you. And when God thinks of you and the inheritance that you are, Christian, He says that inheritance is rich and that inheritance is glorious. I mean, do you, do you think of yourself that way? Think about what that, that says about our Father. He didn't save you because He was obligated to. He didn't save you because it was you know, part of His plan. He kind of had to stick it out. He didn't, he didn't save you because He woke up one morning and kind of thought on a whim. You know what? Hey, that'd be pretty awesome. Let's just get some people up here to kind of sing my praises. Uh, yeah, you made the cut. You can sing. Uh, you, go, you can't. You know, no! That, that's not the Father's heart. That's not why he saved us. God saved you, Christian, because he loves you. 
He saved you because he delights in you, because you are a treasure to him. You bear his image, and he longs to be with you as a groom with his bride. But, you know, if we're honest, we hear that. You have to think, at least I do, well, well, how is that possible? I mean, is God just like high school sweethearts? And love you know, blinds them to all, and they can't see any faults or any troubles or any weaknesses. Well, well no, God's, God's love doesn't blind him to our sin and faults. He knows all and he sees all. But the reason that you're beautiful in his eyes is that he sees you for who you are in Christ. Namely, forgiven cleansed, healed, restored, and righteous. That is who you are in Christ. And when God looks at you, Christian, that is what he sees. It's, it's not imagination. It's a reality. Faith in Christ unites us to Christ such that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And I want to be really clear here because we, we start getting weird with this as Christians sometimes. We think, well, okay, I bet it's like cosmic hide-and-seek. You know, so really the real me is still there. I'm also aware of that. But I've got this like cool Jesus costume thing on, you know. And so, hi, God, I'm Jesus. Yeah, you know, like kids do when they wear a Chewbacca outfit or something like that. You know, we start thinking that, that maybe it's some trick of the mind, like God crosses his eyes and yet the real us is lurking inside the Jesus costume. Friend, that is not at all the case. Not at all. If you're a Christian, God has transformed you, as we sang earlier this morning, from the inside out, okay? He's given you a new heart, a new spirit. He's taken away your guilt, given you Christ's righteousness. You are what God calls a new creation. There's nothing hiding about the old man inside of that. You're new. You've been adopted into his family And you're glorious in the eyes of your Father. You really are new. It's not this cloak and dagger with Jesus stuff. And some of you, because of the way you're struggling with sin right now, are sorely tempted to wonder if God is just tolerating you. Friend, the Father doesn't tolerate His Son. Loves his son. If you are by faith united to Christ, then God loves you in exactly the same way. He doesn't regret creating you, He doesn't regret saving you. You're part of His inheritance, and you couldn't ask for a greater honor. Okay? God doesn't just want you to know that you're called. He wants you to know that you're loved. And he can't wait for the day. God can't wait for the day when he gets to look you in the eyes and say, son or daughter, welcome home. You made it. I knew you were going to make it. (laughs) And you wouldn't have made it without me. But welcome home. It's so good to see you. That's 
the Lord. You're his glorious inheritance. He called you. He loves you. Here's the last thing we need to know. We're going to linger a little bit on this one because Paul does. We need to know the greatness of God's power. We need to know the hope of his call. We need to know the riches of inheritance. We need to know the greatness of his power. You know, I, I was thinking back. I think I've used this example with some of the young people before. You know, 17 years ago when I, I first learned to drive a car, it was a five-speed, uh, four-cylinder Honda Accord. And I remember sitting in Midlothian High School parking lot right across the street, you know, switching places with Dad, sit down in the seat, seat belt on, you know, like grip the steering wheel, perfect driver's ed position back then. Dad's watching. You know, and I barely tapped the gas pedal, and the whole thing like, vroom. And as a 15-year-old kid, I remember thinking in that moment, man, this thing is powerful. <laughs> powerful. I don't know if that's what my dad wanted me to think, but, but I, was, I was hooked. There, there's something thrilling. I mean, really thrilling. I'm not kidding. About, you know, shifting a car into gear, give it the gas, you know, pull the clutch, and just feel this finely tuned piece of machinery just lurch forward underneath you. I mean, is anybody else with me on that? That's just a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Good. It was men and women. I was kind of worried about that. I thought, maybe this is just a guy thing. What makes a car fun to drive is the power inside of it. That was like a four-cylinder Accord. Nothing. Friend, if you're a Christian, there's power inside of you. Real power. But there's a big difference between you and a car. And here's the difference. The power in the most expensive sports car can still be measured, right? So you can spend $2,000 on an Accord or $2 million on some sort of Bugatti or whatever. It doesn't matter how much you spend on that car. It comes with a maximum horsepower rating. And here's where the analogy breaks down. Because what does Paul pray in verse 19? He prays that we would know what? The immeasurable greatness. Immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. You, you can't measure God's power in you. Well, if you can't measure it, how do you know what it's like? How do I know what it's like, Paul? If I can't measure it with the horsepower, how do I know what it's like? Well, because God shows us what it's like. And verses 20 to 23, he gives us three exhibits or illustrations of the working of God's great might in us. Okay? Three examples of the working of his great might. So look at these with me. Exhibit A, God's power that we need to know. First, it's the power that resurrected Christ and the power that exalted Christ. What kind of power is inside of you, Christian? It's a power that resurrected Christ and a power that exalted Christ. You know, we, we live in a world that's full of all sorts of power. All sorts of power, powerful people, powerful machines, powerful nations, powerful medicines. You know, there, there are things that we are able to do today there's, that there's absolutely no way we could have done 50 years ago. No way. But for all our power, you know what we still haven't figured out how to do? We still have no idea how to raise a crucified man from the dead. 
Can't do it. Can't do it. You'd be the President of the United States. You cannot speak to that dead body at whim, on your own, in your power. Come alive. We serve a God who resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay? I don't have a category for that kind of power. There's no car driving experience that compares to that kind of power. But that's not all God did. The power that resurrected Jesus is the power that exalted Jesus. And here is where Paul really pulls out the stops. God raised Christ, verse 20, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, spiritual realms, which means Jesus right now occupies a position of supreme Authority, verse 21, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Think about that. There's not a single spiritual or physical power that existed in the past, exists in the present, or will exist in the future that holds a candle to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Not one, Paul says. Not one. No one can claim a position of authority greater than Jesus. Now, think about what kind of power did it take to give Jesus a position of unqualified supremacy? You realize that? The Father gave that to the Son. What kind of power do you think it took the Father to do that? It just kind of blows your circuit. It's, It's an immeasurable power. The kind of power God exercised when he raised Christ and seated him at his right hand. That's, that's exhibit A. Exhibit A. Here's exhibit B. What kind of power are we talking about, Paul? Exhibit B. It's also the power that subjected all things to Christ. Think about it this way. Just because a power is inferior to you doesn't mean that power is subject to you. There's a difference. So think about the, the final few months of the Civil War. Okay, are Arguably, General Lee's army was inferior to General Grant's on pretty much every metric. But was it subject to Grant's to Appomattox Courthouse? No. No, it was inferior, but it wasn't necessarily subject. And in verse 22, Paul tells us that Jesus doesn't just occupy a position of supreme authority. In addition to that, every authority in the universe is presently subject to him. He occupies a position of supreme authority and every other authority in the universe, every other name that is named in the universe, which by the way includes you and I, is right now subject to him in his authority. He's superior. Everything else is subject. Now, that raises all kinds of questions for thoughtful people. Starting with, how is it possible that that could be true And there's so much suffering and evil in the world. Well, that's a good question. And I'm not just saying that because I don't know what else to say, like people do on TV. So that's a good question. Let me talk about something else I know. No, it's a good question. And friend, the Bible has an answer for that. Good answers. And one of the most important answers the Bible gives is that there is a sense in which the manifestation or exercise of Christ's supremacy is both already and not yet. 
Okay, so follow me here. Christ's supremacy is already in the sense that every authority, whether good or evil, is presently subject to him. They can do nothing outside his sovereign control. Nothing. But it's also not yet in the sense that Jesus is waiting to destroy every evil power until the end of the age. Until he returns. So, so for now, those powers are allowed to continue in the rebellion, even though the rebellion is under the sovereign authority and control of King Jesus in every moment. Okay, So we're not waiting for evil powers to be subjected to Christ. That happened through his death and resurrection. What we are waiting for is for them to be judged and destroyed. And in putting all things under Jesus' feet, through his death and resurrection, God demonstrated his power by enabling Jesus to do, as the last Adam, what the first Adam could not. Namely, to fulfill our mandate to rule over the earth on God's behalf as his representative. And Jesus did that in an infinitely greater way than the first Adam could ever have imagined. Because he ruled over, he he subjected the powers of sin and death under himself. Adam could not have imagined doing that. And yet God promised Adam, did he not? That that's exactly what one of his descendants would do. would, Would crush the head of Satan, the serpent took great power to raise Jesus from the dead, to exalt him at the right hand of the Father, and to subject every other power under his feet. But Paul's got one more exhibit left that I would argue is the most personal of them all for the Ephesians. Exhibit C. It's the power. What kind of power are we talking about, Paul? It's in Christians. Give me an example. It's the power that gave Christ to the church. Now, We could spend an entire morning on verse 23. I'm tempted to do that, but I won't, and I'll summarize. Okay, so to be brief, here's what Paul's saying. God's power didn't stop with exalting Christ. didn't stop with that. It continued to overflow by giving the exalted Christ to the church as her divinely appointed Head. So the church, both universally and locally, is the body of Christ. Not in the sense that Christ is incomplete without us, but in the sense that we are filled, we're the fullness of Christ, with his gifts, with his grace, with his glory. Everyone and everything in the universe is subjected under the feet of of King Jesus. But, but as members of the church, we, we have a, a relationship with him, an organic relationship, a connection. Like your head, hopefully right now, is organically connected to your body. We, we have a connection to Christ as our head that no one else can claim outside of the church. And the fact that he's our head means that he's our leader, he's our savior, he's, he's the one to whom we have to look to, to guide, to deliver, to direct us and In every situation. So as the Son is filled with the glory of the Father, so now us, the church, is filled with the glory of the Son. And as our head, he exercises every last bit of that supreme authority on your behalf. 
That's incredible. So, so here's what this means, very practically. I like Pope Francis. He seems like a nice guy. But he is not the head of the church. He's not. Okay? I'm honored to be one of your pastors. I am not the head of this church. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> Says the pastor in training. You know, God, God has blessed so many of you with, with gifts of wisdom and leadership, but you are not the head of this church. Okay? Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And take care, friend. Take care. If you don't think you need to take care, then you really need to take care. Take care that you don't elevate a man, no matter how gifted or holy, to the position of authority and supremacy and headship that alone belongs to Jesus. That's critical. On the short list of things that I'm convinced as a church, we can be very careful to not do the next several decades. If we want to be around and faithful to Jesus in 50 years, it's this. Do not put a man where Jesus alone belongs. Don't do it to yourself. Don't you dare do that to me. He's the head, not me. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who empowers us. I I love how Andrew Lincoln says, the church appears then to be the focus for and medium of Christ's presence and rule in the cosmos. In Christ, who is the head over all, the church, Kingsway, you, you do, you're part of this, has one who is greater than all the powers ranged against it. Do you believe that? However, Peter O'Brien adds this, its glorious place in the divine plan provides, listen, no grounds for boasting or arrogance or the display of, of a superior air. For the church is wholly dependent on Christ. In itself, it is nothing. We missed a great moment to amen that. All right? In itself, it's nothing. Nothing. All right? But what does he say next? In itself, it's nothing. Its privileged position comes from its relationship to the one who is head, graciously fills it with his presence. That is what gives this local body the greatest dignity imaginable greatest honor imaginable and why our unity and our our diversity and our purity and our our honor are so worth fighting for and protecting it's through christ's presence in our midst that we experience as a church the immeasurable greatness of god's power what kind of power it's the power that raised Christ, the power that exalted Christ, the power that subjected all things to Christ, and the power that gave Christ his head to the church. Okay, we need to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. But, I want to conclude with this. That knowledge, God's power is immeasurably great, is not the end goal of Paul's prayer. It's not. 
Because what Paul is praying is not just that the Ephesians would know that God is powerful, though he is, or that, or that God is, hold on, supremely powerful, immeasurably powerful, though he is. What's he praying? That they would know that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is toward you. Toward you. God doesn't just exist in a powerful sphere somewhere out there. Oh, wow, look, that's pretty cool. No, Christian, the power that raised Christ from the dead, exalted Christ to the right hand of the Father, subjected all things to him and gave him his head to the church, all of that power, no exceptions, is in you. That Confession. I did not wake up this morning thinking that or feeling that. I didn't. Maybe like me, you say, Matthew, I don't feel very powerful. I snapped at my roommate last night. I yelled at my wife this morning. I flubbed that opportunity to share the gospel. I mean, I I think I'm a Christian, but I'm definitely not on the all-star team, and I would be lucky to make the practice squad. Friend, if that's you... If that's you, please hear me. Please hear me. This, this may be the most important thing you hear this entire sermon. The fact that you are not aware of God's power does not mean it's absent. The fact that you're not aware of God's power does not mean it's absent. To the contrary, one of the most important lessons we can learn as Christians is that the experience of God's power is usually accompanied by acute feelings of weakness and insufficiency and inadequacy. Okay? That includes your pastor. Why in the world does God do that? It's because he loves us so much. He loves you so much that he refuses to allow you to experience his power in such a way that you start thinking that you've got the goods, that you're the man, that you're loaded. And if the rest of the world and the church would just get out of the way, you could rock some damage for the kingdom of God, for his glory, maybe, or mine. (laughs) Right? 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's my life first, by the way. It's, it's on a plaque on my bookshelf to show that the surpassing power it's so true. It belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way. Anybody, anybody afflicted? <laughs> but not crushed. Perplexed. Thank you, Paul. But not driven to despair persecuted, but not not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Why do I say that? Why do I say, I mean, come to church and get encouraged, right? Why do I say, that the experience of God's power, immeasurably great power, is more often than not accompanied by acute feelings of weakness, insufficiency, and inadequacy. Why do I say that? Why, do, why does Paul say that? 
Well, friends, it's because there are those around us who are writing books today who would say that unless you're charging through life like some sort of spiritual G.I. Joe who never doubts, never wavers, never struggles, never wonders, never loses heart, that your faith is weak and that you're denying the suppressing power of God in you. We, we, are, we are overcomers, they say. So cheer up. Claim the promises. If you believe it, you'll receive it. We serve a mighty God and there's surpassing power at work in you. Come on. Well, there is. I'll grant you that. But God's power doesn't shine brightest when everything is chipper. And your physical health and your bank account and your family relationships and your brands making new car are all amazing. You know when God's power shines brightest? It's when you feel like giving up. And you've got nothing in the tank. And you cry out to God with this mixture of confusion and despair that you, you just wish would go away. Father, please help me. Help me. I don't even know what to pray for. But I need you. I need you to strengthen my faith. I need you to fix my eyes on Jesus. I need you to be for me what I cannot be for myself. My faith is so, so weak right now. Help me. Okay? That feels like weakness. That feels like inadequacy. That that feels like insufficiency. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because to follow in the footsteps of of a suffering Savior who did what? Displayed God's power in his weakness. Is not to be invited down a road of inevitable failure, but to be invited down a road with Christ of inevitable glory as the immeasurable greatness of the power of God is perfected in your weakness. It doesn't feel so often, like what we want it to feel. But that's by design. To keep us dependent and humble and desperate for God. Friends, we have a desperate need for the knowledge of God. We we need to know the hope of his call. We need to know the riches of, of his inheritance. We need to know the greatness of his power. And praise God that to thirst for the knowledge of God is to thirst for the one thing God is most eager to give you. Our greatest need matches God's greatest desire. If you thirst, if you are longing in your soul right now, friend, to know God, then you are thirsting, longing, hungering for the very thing God is most eager to give you. We need His power Do we not to say no to sin and yes to holiness? To trust Him. Life doesn't make sense. To not not lose heart when our body is failing. When we're waiting for a spouse or a a wayward child. We we need power to proclaim the gospel with boldness. And be compassionate toward the weak. And to that end, why don't we pray and ask for it? Let's pray.
Oh, Lord. God in heaven, thank you for the privilege this morning of, in a small way, thinking your thoughts after you. And God, I pray right now that as we sing, and we do so with a heart that is all too aware of that last point, that we need your power. Big time. Right now. Spirit of God, I ask that you would pour it out in abundance in this place right now. Lord, along with my brothers and sisters, I come to you and say, God, I want to know the hope of my call. I want to know your purpose for me. I I, I want to know your heart for me. Riches of your inheritance. More than anything, Lord, I need to know the immeasurable greatness of your power, especially when I feel so weak. Oh, God, renew our faith as a church right now to believe and trust that you're at work in us when we don't feel it and can't see it. And thank you, Father, for examples, exhibits, illustrations of your great power in Christ that we can look to and say, if that kind of power is at work in me, then it is well with my soul. For your glory, I pray. Amen.